Hi, this is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Coming up, we ask what happens to the Barack Obama new media machine. We'll check in on the NFL, and we'll talk with Hal Jackson, a radio pioneer who was the first African-American inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. But first... There's no apostrophe in Obama, like in O'Leary or O'Hara, but a small village in Ireland claims the president-elect is a descendant. Moneygall, a town of 300 on the road between Dublin and Limerick, says that Barack Obama's great-great-great-grandfather was born there. Now Moneygall's hoping for an onslaught of American tourism. During the campaign, Senator Obama did tell an Irish interviewer that he looked forward to going there and having a pint. There are two pubs in Moneygall, as opposed to the two per address they have in Chicago. A welcome song has already been written. O'Leary, O'Reilly, O'Hare and O'Hara. There's no one as Irish as Barack Obama. Politics, schmalitics. It's time now for sports. I think it's vital that as a country we move past this election. There's so many pressing, important stories to tell from the engaging world of professional football. For instance, this weekend, Senator Lamar Alexander's Tennessee Titans remain undefeated, only the fifth team since 1970 to go 8-0. This week they face President-elect Barack Obama's Chicago Bears, a bit wobbly but still winning. Joining us from Senator Ted Kennedy's home state Patriots, yeah, home, I, I, you know what I mean, is our own great American, Howard Bryant. Howard, thanks for being with us. Allison, is that you? Allison? <laughs> Gee, you, you, don't you mangle the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I'll get you back. Huh? I, I, it's not a state. It's a Commonwealth. I understand. <laughs> uh, and uh, Howard, look, before we get to the teams, the big issue this season in the NFL seems to be all these fines uh, the zebras are handing out for hits. That's right. Imagine that, being fined for hitting somebody in football. Uh, that is the great story going on right now, especially because... The NFL has for years been talking about trying to protect their quarterbacks, and as we all know in the great macho world of of professional football, the quarterbacks are supposed to be the, the girly men of sport. However, they are the backbone of the game. They're the most glamorous position. They make the most money, and they actually help your team win, as the good folks in Massachusetts and New England know, without Tom Brady, they're just another football team. Yeah, you've, you've da- got, Dallas, too. And yes. Dallas, as well. You've got Troy Palomalu, the great safety for the Pittsburgh Steelers, saying they're trying to turn football into a sissy sport. And, and it's a very interesting balance. It's very similar to what's happening in baseball, where you have very few uh, guys throwing inside anymore. And I, and I think one of the reasons is because you, these players make so much money, they are huge, huge financial investments. They're assets now. Yeah. And if you're a football owner and you're paying a quarterback forty, fifty, sixty million dollars over the length of a contract, you don't want to see him on the sidelines. The league doesn't want to see him on the sidelines. You want to see that player on the field. And so now you've got this sport, which is known for its brutality, trying to ease up at full speed, three hundred pound guy racing at a you know, at a two hundred pound player. 
And it's it's an interesting balance, yeah. and I, and I I think that football has kind of have it's got to lighten up one way or the other because it's kind of hard not to hit somebody on a football field. What do you make of the fact that the players' union, which which obviously has an investment in the health of players, has objected to the size of these fines because I guess they often also have an investment in the investment portfolios of players. Well, it, you've got you're pitting player against player, and it's a very difficult balance because on the one hand. The sport you're teaching players. If you 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 go to a football practice, you're teaching the player, the defending, the defensive player, to wrap up and drive to the ground, and that's exactly what the players are being fined for. So it's kind of like, what are we doing here? But on the other hand, you do understand as well that this is a multi-billion-dollar business, and when money rules, you know what's going to happen. The defensive player is going to lose, and at some point, the at some point, the quality of the, of the game is going to suffer because you have these unnecessary fines and penalties. They affect the, the outcome of the game. I think the other thing that's taking place here, too, which is, which is to me, is, is pretty important, is it's the technology itself. If you look at rugby or look at soccer or look at some of these other sports where there is physicality, you don't have this great armor. And yeah. you know that when you hit someone, you can hurt yourself as well. Football players believe they're invincible. They, they go head first with their helmets. They've got these huge pads, yeah. and, and they honestly believe that when they hit, they're not going to hurt. So I think that when you, had, when you go back to the old leather helmets, you might actually have a less violent game. We've we got time for two quick questions, Howard, okay? Yes. Who, who's better, the Titans or the New York Giants? The New York Giants are the best team in football. You look at what they did beating the Patriots last year, and they seem to have springboarded themselves all the way to, uh, to being. It's not a great league this year, but they are the best team. And uh, do the Bears have a chance to beat the Tennessee Titans? I mean, Rex Grossman's back. No great teams in the league, but I like Tennessee. They don't score a lot of points, but they're a very, very good defensive team, and they run the ball. Yeah, okay. I know I know where they're going to run it, too. All right, Howard Bryant of ESPN.com, ESPN The Magazine, and ESPN The Lobbyist. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. President-elect Obama's campaign exploited the possibilities of new technology to raise money, rouse support, share videos, and rally the voters from Grant Park on Tuesday night to Iowa last January. But what happens now to an online community of millions that's used to getting emails signed Barack, now that Barack will become president? Nika Sifri is co-founder of techpresident.com, a blog that looks at how the 2008 presidential candidates use the web and vice versa. He's also a contributor to our Weekend Soapbox blog. He joins us from our studios in New York. Mika, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So how did President-elect Obama use the web? Well, I think he understood that this was going to be the first election where millions of people could actively participate on their own. And we saw that with people blogging and making their own videos and so on. What his campaign did almost to perfection is understand that their approach had to be to give all these activists a platform to collaborate together in helping his campaign. The centerpiece of this was uh, a tool called MyBarackObama.com, or MyBo for short, which allowed anybody who wanted to to create an account on the site and, in effect, go to town. You could use it to start your own group, to start your own fundraiser, to hold an event. 1.6 million people, uh, as of last count, created accounts on MyBo. It generated 200,000 
events organized by supporters, 50,000 in just the last few weeks of the campaign. And what happens to that network now? Well, I think a number of things are going to happen. The MIBO network itself is a political entity. It can't come with Obama into the White House. That would violate you know, the laws about government employees uh, not you know, using government resources yeah. in politics. So my guess is MIBO is probably going to get folded into the Obama political operation at the Democratic National Committee. It would be crazy for them to shut it down. You know, the president always has the power of the bully pulpit. Mm -hmm. He can go over the heads of Congress and try and, and, you know, influence them through the airwaves. Now he has the ability to also go between the legs of members of Congress right down to the grassroots in their districts. The other question is, what will he do with the web from the White House itself? And he's, this is where I think the most exciting stuff is, is likely to happen. He's talked about making government more transparent and making government more connected. I'm interested in this. We interviewed, well, quite a few Obama supporters this week, obviously, but I remember speaking with, with one man in particular, a public school teacher, and he says, look, I, I, we, we know he promised to end the war in Iraq. We, he promised a middle-class tax cut. I tell you, if he doesn't fulfill these specific promises, we're going to be all over him. Is this a structure that's been created that could, if he makes some decisions that, that some of his supporters doesn't like, also be used against him? Well, that's democracy. You know, I mean, we've always had that give and take between politicians and their base. You know, Obama himself has said, we want to use the web uh, almost as a countervailing force to the power of special interests, that it's only when millions of people are paying attention and can know what's going on and speak loudly that you can reduce the influence of special interests. Those are his words. But uh, again, it may be more of a lever that works to his benefit in helping him change things than in preventing him from doing stuff. Mika, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Scott. Mika Sifri is co-founder of techpresident.com and a contributor to the Weekend Soapbox blog, which you can find at npr.org slash soapbox. There was a birthday bash this week at the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem for Hal Jackson. Anyway, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, bless your hearts for being with us. You've made us number one. Number one. Mr. Jackson, can I ask how old you turned? Oh, oh. Ninety-three. Oh, right. <laughs> Hal Jackson's in our studios in New York, where he still has a weekly show on WBLS. He's one of the founders of the Inner City Broadcasting Company, a fantastically successful string of stations. Mr. Jackson, thanks so much for being with us. I thank you for having me. It's a real honor. Well, the honor is ours. Tell me, if you could about the time you walked into, I believe it was radio station WINX in 1939, an African-American man, you walked into a station in Washington, D.C. and said, hi, I want to be on the air. <laughs> oh, they told me that no nigger will ever go on this radio station, so get it out of your mind. Don't even think about it. You take that in stride. You just say, that's a boost to make sure that we get on there. And then to go on, it really made it a wonderful opening for somebody else. How did you figure out how to, a way how to get on the air? Well, I had to get a friend of mine at the White Advertising Agency to buy the time. We stayed outside of the studio until we got the proper signal. And then we walked right in and went right on the air. So there was no stopping. They hit a panic button. But um, 
it was too late. Tomorrow night is the big night over at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. When the I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. And you none of us went into the studio the before that one moment. Then we all walked in. Don't worry and don't even have a sneeze in the house to Jackville. Everything is cozy and warm. And, and the, the show you did for so many years called The House That Jack Built. Take us back to that, because you, as I understand it, you would uh, greet listeners, then take them on a tour from room to room. That was a creative thing that I loved, and everybody seemed to like being a part of it because we open up the musical doors and we have recorded stars from here to Mars. Whether you're home or in your cars, you're relaxing with Jackson in the house that Jack built. Each room that we would go in, in this imaginary house that Jack built, was for a different kind of person. In other words, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, head of the National Council of Eagle Women, was one thing. And then when we had Dr. Charles Drew opening up another door, he would talk about the blood plasma that he had created. And it was just terrific. And of course, the music, jazz, I, you know, had lived so much with it, and uh, R&B as well. I was so into the jazz thing. Jazz was in the living room, and we just loved it. I'm, I'm going to read a list of firsts uh, that are attributed to you. Uh, first African American on network radio. First African-American in the Radio Hall of Fame. First person to broadcast live from a theater. First person to host a rock and roll show at Carnegie Hall. I must have missed a few, too, didn't I? The things that I have been a part of on the first is just my love for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Like um, a basketball team. I organized this team. And they're the world's professional basketball champions. That's what it turned out to be. Now, everything else was from the bottom up. I love the idea of doing interviews with people, letting them feel a part of this house that Jack built. I hope you don't mind me asking this. Um, we, we know that the present Mrs. Jackson is with you there, yes? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You've been married four times, I'm told, Mr. Jackson. You've been married four times. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. You, you were close friends with Ella Fitzgerald, I gather. Very dear friends with Ella. Ella was, you'd never believe it when she was on stage. She was basically a very shy, shy person. And I used to sit with her and encourage her. But the minute she would hit that stage, she would really light up. I lick him with the pot and the frying pan. I lick him with the pot and the frying pan. I lick him with the pot and the frying pan. And if I kill him, he had it coming. Man, he's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. I killed nobody but my husband. Are there... Uh... Are there any other musical performers you remember that maybe are not as famous as Ella Fitzgerald, but they were important to you? 
Uh, you mean other famous people? Mm -hmm. Josh Gibson, who was one of the greatest of all baseball players, he never did get into the major league. But it gave me a chance to tell everybody what a great home run hitter and player that he was. Get past the people, get past the hitmen! James Brown, did you know him? Oh my God, yes, I knew him. I worked with James so many times. <laughs> he, he was just unbelievable. Once he'd get on stage, he would just tear everything up. And he was a very kind person. Whenever I go to hospitals to see people, he was right there with me. And then he would do a little serenading for them. James was a talented, talented young man. A very talented young man. Where people give a sign and shake your hands And dance until the music James Brown band They're dancing on the good foot I got to get on the good foot I got to do it on the good foot Do it with your good foot You know, Mr. Jackson, here this week you're turning 93, God bless, and I can't help but reflect on the fact that uh, when you started on the air, Franklin D. Roosevelt was president, and now you will be playing music under a President Obama. What, what does that mean to you? I think it's wonderful, and I think it, it, we have grown. The American people have grown to open up their minds and their hearts to what is good for the country. Obama is that kind of person that can straddle it. Everybody couldn't straddle that line that we needed, but he can. What, what music, what, what song do you suggest we play coming out of this interview to cap this historic week? Oh, my goodness, huh? There's no stopping us now. That's a good one. Ain't no stopping there us now. There ain't no stopping us now. Many things. Jackson, awfully nice to talk to you. Happy birthday. And by the way, thank you so much for having me. Our can we have you back when you turn 95? Oh, it'd be a pleasure. All right. It'd be an honor for me to come back. We'll pencil it in two years from now. There's been so many things that's held us down. But now it looks like things are finally coming around. I know we've got a long, long way to go And where we'll end up, I don't know but Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead. We also heard music by Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis and songs from Evolution of Soul, a collection of Hal Jackson's favorites. You can hear his show, Sunday Classics, on WBLS-FM in New York or on WBLS.com everywhere, every Sunday. And you can hear us every Saturday. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
Thanks for listening to At Your Leisure. If you need more Weekend Edition on the weekdays, please come to our blog, npr.org soapbox. I'm Scott Simon.